and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Peter Carroll, Professor of Law at New England Law Boston. We will discuss his article, Permissive Certificates, Collectors of Art as Collectors of Permissions, which will be published by the Washington Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm a, I've become a real fan of the podcast. Oh, fantastic. I'm so, so, so glad and honored to hear it. So as you know, I'm a big art fan and art law fan as well. And I really loved reading your paper because you, you know, you, I, I think you really do a great job of investigating this really peculiar and fascinating new way that people are thinking about and transacting in, in conceptual artworks. Um, and in order for listeners to better understand the subject matter of your paper, I thought maybe we could kind of take a step back and, and talk a little bit about how the art world functions and sort of what people are, are transacting for when they engage in art transactions. So maybe you could start by explaining, you know, what is a certificate of authenticity, right? A sort of more traditional um, sort of certificate for artwork. And and how does a certificate of authenticity work? Yeah, of course. Um, so certificates of authenticity have been around um, pretty much forever in art transactions. And these are documents that generally would accompany the sale of a high value art object. So for example, let's say I bought an old master painting and I wanted to assure myself that this was in fact uh, the old master painting that I thought I was getting, um, I would uh, ask for a certificate of authenticity to accompany that sale, and it would have usually language that authenticates uh, the artwork um, and is essentially a you know, contractual promise that uh, the object described in the certificate is in fact what it says it is. That is a work by um, Canaletto, whoever it was, um, and painted at the time or whatever one, kind of information you want to put in there. Right. So would a certificate of authenticity be generated by the artist, by somebody else? Would it depend on the circumstances? Sort of what would be the basis for issuing a certificate of authenticity? And what would happen if it turned out that it, it wasn't actually an authentic work? Sure. I mean, I, so I think most of these are generally associated with, with dealer transactions in which you go to the art dealer, um, and that would be in sort of a, a secondary market usually. Um, so you're going to buy uh, some type of artwork, and you buy it from the dealer, and the dealer accompanies it with certificates, a certificate of authenticity. Um, to the extent that it turns out later that the document uh, that the uh, artwork is not authentic, and this happens quite often, of course, um, you would end up essentially with a, a usually a breach of contract claim, where uh, effectively um, what you bought wasn't what you thought you bought, um, and you would have an action um, for. Um, a breach of contract. Now, there's a lot of cases involving statute of limitations and that sort of thing that we find uh, in the art market where it's just taken too long to assert. Um, but for the most part, um, these are kind of guided by a lot of contract law principles. And um, for those familiar with the UCC, it would mostly be governed by the UCC. And then even more specifically, art market legislation that some jurisdictions have passed to govern these kind of um, promises that are being made about whether or not these works are authentic. 
So in a lot of ways, it seems like certificates of authenticity are sort of relatively familiar traditional contractual arrangements just in a particular setting. But, but in your, in your paper, you talk about, um, some kind of emerging forms of certificates that seem like meaningfully and interestingly different from a more traditional certificate, specifically in relation to different kinds of conceptual or uh, less traditional in a kind of historical sense forms of artwork. So I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit, like what is, what is conceptual art and the other kinds of kind of art practices that you're talking about in the paper and what do the certificates in those kinds of works look like? How do they work? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I'm really interested in in the paper, as you're pointing out, is is certificates of authenticity that have been used by artists um, as effectively the place wherein the artwork itself is memorialized. And I'll talk about what I mean by that. But the basic idea is going to be that these are not um, certificates that accompany the sale of objects like those traditional ones we just talked about, but where the certificate is itself somehow uh, creating the artwork. And, and let's step back a little bit. So when we're talking about conceptual art, um, there's a million different definitions, depending on where you look of that term, and it's very loaded. So I don't want to um, try to um, oversimplify it here. But we're basically talking about um, uh, artworks that are as much based on the idea or the concept um, a- as much as anything else. Um, and um, that can be a very loaded term in copyright terms. So let's, I'll stay away from that com- copyright idea of what idea means. Uh, mm. But we're basically talking about um, something that that is um, later realized in various different ways. And I'll give you an example of this. So um, Saul LeWitt, who is very much associated with kind of early conceptual art, um, would create these wall drawings. And these wall drawings um, would be um, uh, provided to um, a person who was acquiring them in the form of, of really two documents. Uh, one would be um, a certificate, which authenticated it. The other would be essentially instructions uh, for the document. Um, and what that uh, bearer of the document would have is effectively the right um, to uh, render that on uh, one's wall um, wherever uh, one chose. Now, usually this would be in conjunction with the artist himself and then after he died with the estate um, and it wasn't totally separate uh, separated from uh, the original artist, but you basically, in realizing the work, you would realize it anew each time. And I think it was pretty important for LeWitt and many conceptual artists that these papers that are kind of um, providing the transaction or, or, or really uh, memorializing the artwork are not themselves the work. The work is sort of the ongoing interaction and realization of these um, installations over time. Um, so one of the really interesting um, things that you need to think about as you kind of analyze these from a legal perspective is where is the work and what is the work here? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, th- so so just to clarify – if I'm a collector, for example, buying a Solowit uh, uh, wall drawing, what what exactly do I buy, and when does the work itself come into existence, and where where would I find it? I guess. I mean, like you gave an example, like you gave a kind of historical example relating to one of the drawings that I thought was really puzzling. I, and I was looking to kind of lay out the factual background of like the homeowner who found the solid wit 
dry wall wall drying or or I guess the question would be did they find a soloit wall drying or what what did they find? So I, I think you're talking about the the case that arose uh, sort of last year or two in Houston. Uh, it's a really interesting case. Um, so there was an architect who I believe was by the name of Bill Stern who was an art collector and architect in the Houston, greater Houston area. Um, and he owned a Solowit wall drawing, uh, number 679, actually. And this wall drawing um, was um, uh, painted into his home uh, in the Houston area. And it's, it's rather large. It's almost like if you imagine a, a blue, yellow, and sort of reddish mural um, that would take up a large wall in your house. Um, so Stern died, um, and he left his collection and house to the Menil Collection. And so what that means in the context of Solowit is effectively that the Menil Collection, a, a very well-regarded um, institution in, in the Houston area, um, acquired these two documents, which would be effectively the certificate um, along with the actual um, diagram for the drawing. And that would go into – be accessioned into the Menil's collection. So the Menil, as I mentioned, also got the real estate, from what I understand, the house itself. Um, and I presumably having not much need for a house, um, they sold it. And my understanding from, from what I've read about the case is that they, uh, as LeWitt basically would have wanted, overpainted the wall that had the LeWitt on it with a bunch of, of plaster and white paint. In other words, I will sell you this house, but you're not going to get what was the remnants of a LeWitt wall drawing with it. Um, so uh, fast forward, um, and the new owner um, decides to start what what is called an unerasing project, and that's their words, not not mine, um, to effectively uh, try to re-expose the Lewitt uh, from the wall. And that's a, if you think about it, like take a chisel um, and start sort of chip, chipping away at the plaster and trying to get that under that Lewitt that's sort of hiding behind there um, to come to the fore again. And uh, the Manila collection, from what I understand, started, you know, so, so there's, uh, this got a lot of press and art bloggers were starting to talk about it. Um, and uh, the Manila collection sort of reached out and, and uh, as kind of it's generously thought, um, sort of educated uh, some art bloggers. To the point where, um, the, the, one of the bloggers actually issued uh, what is, reads as a retraction saying um, basically uh, the ink drawing behind the wall is not a work by Solowit, as they have referred to it. Uh, it is simply the remnants of what was once the execution of the conceptual work. So, um, you know, this is having a real impact uh, on the way people are talking about these things. And, um, uh, you know, you can ask, it's a really interesting ontological question of where is that work and what is that work? And it really came to the fore there. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's that ontological question that really gets me. Cause like, you, you know, you say the remnants of a Solowit wall drawing, but it's like the, the drawing itself didn't change when the house got sold, right? <laughs> or when the Manila collection got the certificate. I mean, it's the same. The physical drawing is the same. So, you know, what, what makes it a remnant and like, where is the work, I guess? And I think we're at, we're supposed to ask that question in a way, right? And I think you know it's 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 sort of like you know Lewitts are often likened to a symphony or or some sort of musical composition in which you have you know the work is there's the score that sort of captures the transcription of work, but then it's performed repeatedly by various you know orchestras over time, and the work is sort of the ongoing collection of these multiple layers of of performances plus the original composition, and it's somewhere in the middle of that space that is you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or whatever you want. 
Um, so one way to look at it is sort of reductively, it's the thing captured in the documents. And I think from a copyright perspective, if we start to talk about, you know, I often get the question of, are these things fixed and are they just ideas? And one way to approach it is to say, well, it's fixed in the form of the diagram that would be contained in the Solowit um, diagram accompanying the certificate. But that's um, really not the full content of the work. The work really does extend mm. with sort of this longitudinal um, uh, over time um, uh, kind of almost living nature. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's almost like a literal literalization of of sort of the ontology of copyright in 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 the sense that it seems like normally we would say that the drawing on the wall is like a copy of the work, but in some way, it seems like the metaphysical distinction between the certificate and the copy sort of like emphasizes the independence of the work from any particular copy of the work. I think that's right. And I think that a lot of the artists practicing in this space wanted it to be that way. Um, it's interesting though. You have to draw a distinction between the various, you know, it's very, you can't just paint with one brush as I just did. Um, all the artists who work in conceptual mm. practices. And I think you get a very different case in somebody like Donald Judd, who's also associated with um, certificates of authenticity and the documents that are captured in the form, or excuse me, the artworks that are captured in the form of certificates. Um, so Judd sold uh, in the early seventies um, quite a few works to a collector named Giuseppe Ponza, who was really early forerunner of, of art collecting practices when it comes to what I'm calling in this, in this uh, article, permissive certificates. And he basically collected a whole bunch of these works on paper, right? So um, Donald Judd had a piece, for example, called um, seven plywood cubes. Um, and these are basically uh, a series of large plywood boxes that would, you'd see in kind of familiar Donald Judd fashion. But when they were mm. acquired by um, Ponza, he only acquired paper, right? He just acquired effectively instructions and the rights to create this. Now, I think, so what happened was there was a lot of arguments that happened later on between Judd and Ponza, and they famously had a falling out, um, and Judd effectively excoriated Ponza uh, in a 1990 piece called Anastanza per Ponza, which is a great reading um, if you have the time. So, you know, part of his complaint was that Ponza was – among other things, uh, serially sort of recreating some of these works, um, not just once, but almost in a Lewitt fashion of sort of doing it uh, more than once and having this kind of work extend over time. But for Judd, at least according to 1990 writings, um, he really didn't envision it to be that way. He envisioned it only ever to be created once and only once um, from the certificate. And in fact, he... Um, asserted that he should have been very much involved in the realization of the work, whereas Ponza quite expressly took the position that he was uh, authorized in the documents to create it as Judd's work in Judd's name himself um, without direct supervision by Judd, and that led to a lot of the problems between the two of them. So this seems to really get it at something you talk about quite extensively in the paper, with, which is this idea of the certificates in these cases not really being so much certificates of authenticity, but sort of like certificates as a memorialization of a license of some kind. I was wondering if you could talk about about why you use the kind of license metaphor or model to think about them and how you think that affects sort of how we should think about the transactions and what people are owning and transacting in. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I think 
the way I like to, to see these and a lot of what the article is about, as you mentioned, is sort of unpacking how we might want to view these from sort of a legal perspective um, as disputes about these things become more common as they, the transactions involving them become more common um, is really that these are basically you're buying and selling permissions in a way. Um, and, and, if you view it as sort of a, a copyright license um, or some other type of license, effectively you're, you're, you're saying that I have the uh, right as the buyer, instead of to hang this object on my wall, I have essentially the right to create this. And, and that there's a series of, of related rights that would come with that usually. And I'm not saying this is going to be the true in all cases, but usually it's the right to sort of create it, possibly the right to display it publicly. Um, and often just as important to any of these is really the right to associate the artist's name with it as the creator of the work, right? To say that this is in fact a Judd. Um, and that is often where the rubber hits the road for people not being pleased with, with certain objects being associated with the artist long after the fact. Um, either the realization was not in the way that they expected it, or um, uh, it was completed too many times or something like that. So I think if a court, you know, the way I like to approach it is sort of like if a court ever got their hands on one of these um, and one of these disputes that you are happening more and more actually got litigated all the way through, uh, how might a court try to understand it? And I really think they would understand it as effectively just like if you, you know, there's the uh, a movie reel and you can sell the movie reel, right? Um, or you can um, provide some sort of permission to show the movie reel. Um, and and mm. if there's a dispute over what that document that provided the permission is it would really be a fight over the extent and the scope of the license. And I think a lot of these um, uh, disputes from a U.S. law perspective, at least, would be um, sort of envisioned as what is the scope of the permission? Um, what are the um, various limitations on the permission? Was the artist supposed to be just notified or involved in the creation of it? What do we need? To, there's going to be a lot that's going to need to be implied um, from these documents here because they can be really quite sparse and have almost no language that would help a judge if it ever came to that. I mean, it really does. I mean, your paper really illuminates the way in which these transactions are different in really fundamental ways from more traditional art world transactions insofar as Normally, we think of artists as selling, from a kind of a legal perspective, selling copies of a work and retaining the copyright. But in some sense, these permissive licenses seem to kind of muddy the waters to some degree, insofar as the artists seem to be transacting in the copyright rather than in a particular, often unique copy. And I wonder how you think that affects sort of how the legal regime would look at the transaction. Yeah, it's one of the most interesting cases here related to that is that when the light, when the, when the permissive certificates, again, my term there, um, start talking about additioning, right? So when you often it's common in the print world or, or etchings or something like that, you would say, here's a addition of 25 works, right? Um, well, you see this in permissive certificates too. So let me, let me give you an example. So there's an artist, uh, Kareth Wynne Evans that I talk about in the piece, um, who has a, a text art piece, um, called with the advent of radio astronomy um, back from 2000, I believe it was. And it was addition one of 25. But what, what you're basically buying with this work is a, a, um, a permissive certificate, right? The, a, some sort of copyright permission to um, create what is a, a, essentially a paragraph of text that you then affix to your wall. Um, you also get a, a sort of PDF that allows you to print out that text. So 
but it's addition. So even though you kind of have an infinite right to recreate it, but only having one and only one at a time, the artist considers there to be 25 of these works out there. I talk about how there's this sort of back and forth between, you know, one of 25, but it's really one of infinity because, you know, any given owner can recreate it in infinite numbers of times. Yeah. And, 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 and I, and I guess the, the question I can't help but asking is, you know, from a copyright doctrinal perspective, I mean, do some of these permissive certificates flirt with the potential for unenforceability? I mean, are artists trying to accomplish things that are in tension with what copyright doctrine anticipates? Yes, I do think that's you know a major issue here, and I think that um, uh, you see that um, quite a bit. For example, in the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, who's often talked about in this context. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Gonzalez Torres, and I'll talk about his work in a second, was was trying to sort of use copyright really in any way. I don't think he was. Um, but he was uh, used quite a few permissive certificates in his practice um, with very interesting language in them, almost to which some of them almost become sort of art forms in themselves, the way he uses legal language in there. Um, but he would basically, he's most probably best known um, for piles of candy that you would see in the corner of, of some um, contemporary art museums where you're free to sort of take away uh, candy and consume it. And the bearer of, of that document, right, the owner of the artwork, um, has the right to replenish that candy infinitely um, and um, basically keep this kind of ever-living uh, artwork of candy in the corner. He also did quite a few works um, called stacks, which are basically uh, the right to reproduce um, sheets of paper with certain text on them. And I think, you know, a lot of other people um, have talked about in, in terrific articles um, some of the problems um, with the copyrightability of, of these unfixed works like the candy piles. Azar Saeed has a, a great piece on that. Um, and really just getting into the detail of why copyright doesn't quite extend to those kind of works, especially because they're so um, uh, dynamic and changing over time. And so I do think this pushes a lot at sort of what copyright can handle. Uh, especially when it comes to issues like fixation and, and, and the idea expression dichotomy. But, but I do want to point out that these works are so different and every one of them it really needs to be treated on their own terms. And many of them really do have a strong case for copyright, despite the common association of conceptual art with merely being an idea. Yeah, so I've definitely seen a lot of people sort of wrestling with the copyrightable subject matter question with a lot of conceptual art because it kind of flirts with the idea expression dichotomy, sometimes arguably following on the uncopyrightable idea side. But but what I thought was really interesting in in your paper was the way you engage more with the contractual questions because it it, it seems to me that there are ways in which buyers and sellers are trying to engage in at least potentially mutually agreeable transactions that in some cases might be in tension with what copyright doctrine kind of contemplates or is kind of conceptually able to understand and enforce. And, and I wonder if you think that's a problem and something we should be worried about if like we're doctrinally frustrating people's attempts to accomplish like at least potentially re, you know beneficial goals i don't you know I, i'm i'm not so worried about it from from that perspective because these are such unique um 
situations. <laughs> I, I, and also there's, you know, let's never forget that the, you know, the norms of, of the, the, the art world are so kind of intricately tied into this. And, and I would never want to mm-hmm. suggest that copyright is sort of driving the bus here um, in terms mm-hmm. of sort of what a collector wants. Um, so for example, the Crystal Bridges Museum acquired one of these Felix Gonzalez Torres pieces. And to give your listeners a sense of kind of the values we're talking about, um, uh, $7.6 million was the reported price for acquiring the right to have um, a Felix Gonzalez Torres um, candy spill in the corner. And of course that does not include the candy, right? You still have to go out and attain mm. the candy. Um, and, uh, but it's just this is such a kind of esoteric and unique space that if if one were to sort of say, oh, well, Felix Gonzalez Torres is not subject to copyright, but they're trying to get around it. And I'm going to sort of challenge that by doing my own Felix Gonzalez Torres pile of candy. Um, uh, and I don't know how, how how much good that would do you and whether copyright's really doing that much work for that particular example mm-hmm. anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, but at the same time, like, as you mentioned, this is really pushing at sort of whether we can do through contracts what um, copyright might not uh, either want us to do or have envisioned us doing. Um, one real interesting question that comes up, I know, I know Brian, you're very interested in, in resale royalties, but one, one thing that's really interesting to me is whether, um, you know, these kind of documents could start to function as something like a, a, a resale royalty, right, where you're basically um, forcing certain certain um, the artist back into the picture by having this ongoing kind of copyright control over things that might even be outside mm-hmm. of the scope of copyright um, through sort of contractual control and whether that can be leveraged to sort of um, extract some sort of resale royalty if and when the work wants to be sold. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and it seems to me that in some ways it's like it, it in part there's a potential for a resale royalty, but it's also like the, the contracts or the, the the certificates you're describing seem to imply a much more sort of intimate long-term relationship between the artist and the buyer kind of over the work itself that it seems like a lot of artists in other media want but don't always know how to realize. And somehow the conceptual artists have sort of accomplished it by dematerializing the work. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that when you, when you don't have this object that can sort of be transacted time and again and become ever more removed from the artist, when you're, instead you're dealing with permissions and paper, um, there's such a close connection. And this reminds me from my own kind of practice days of, of my trademark practice where, you know, trademark licensing is, is creates such a ongoing relationship between the licensor and the licensee. And it's almost adding injecting into the artist collector dynamic an ongoing almost duty to sort of supervise or control that you see in trademark practice um, between the artist and collector. And, and, I think the falling out between Ponza and uh, Judd is a, is a great example of sort of like when the licensor just loses complete faith in their licensee and then the court has to sort of wrestle with um, whether, you know, the licensee gets to continue using the trademark and how that works. You're sort of seeing the, 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 the artist here getting in certain ways almost unintentionally or undesirably, I'm not sure the artist always wanted this, you know, 30 years later still having this ongoing relationship with collectors of their work. Yeah, and 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 you you mentioned trademark, and and I th- I'd love it if you could like talk a little bit more about the relationship between 
copyright and trademark in the context of these kinds of certificates? Because, you know, normally we think about artwork as being primarily governed by a copyright regime. But with a lot of the works you've described, especially I think the Felix Gonzalez Taurus work, it really seems like maybe the transaction is more like a kind of a trademark sort of transaction in goodwill almost, although it still seems like that's not maybe quite the perfect description either. I'm not sure. I agree with you, your your kind of hesitation that it's not quite the perfect description, and I have the same one as well. But at the same time, I actually think trademark's almost more on all fours than copyright with a lot of these um, particular transactions. I don't even want to use the word transactions, uh, artworks. because you know it's there isn't it's so much about kind of this this relationship of sponsorship or approval that this is in fact something that Gonzalez Torres um, created and it was his you know conceptual uh, content that is now being um, realized but but certified almost um, uh, as something that that he approved of which feels like such a trademark concept the idea of two sort of distinct um, um, parties one of which is approving what the other is doing um, and and to me that that just really speaks of trademark and I talk a lot in the paper about you know how I really read these permissive certificates as having a, a, a trademark component often implied but you see a lot of these documents talking about the artist's name, and this is a work by this artist. And of course, the owner wants to be able to say that, but also uh, if you're ever going to sell it at auction or something like that, to use it on resale, which becomes incredibly important. Um, and you know, we have cases where uh, an artist came out and said, no, you can't associate my name with that work, and it instantly lost all value. Uh, Damien Hurst had an inter- interesting example of this with one of his early spot paintings um, from, I think, 1989. He has this ongoing long series of spot paintings, I think in the thousands. Um, an early one of which was uh, sort of like that Lewitt example we started off with, painted um, directly onto the wall in a house. Um, and then a series of things happens. A later owner owns the house and um, tries to re- has professionally removed the wall from the, um, the house so that it could be sold at auction as a Hearst spot painting. Well, Hearst had actually, um, according to the articles I've read, retained the certificate uh, for that spot painting and basically said, uh, renounced authorship of it. So even though there was no question that Hearst himself had painted onto that wall those spots and that nothing had changed about those spots and they had been professionally removed, um, a gallerist who was trying to sell the work was basically not permitted to say it was a Hearst and the work was basically unsaleable and the auction houses wouldn't even take it. So I, I, I really um, – the, the the renunciation attribution element here – is I think really fascinating because it, it has always struck me as something that copyright really does not contemplate at, at all <laughs> and that the courts haven't really struggled with until very recently. And, you know, there's been this recent Katie Nolan controversy over the log cabin sculpture that she created, which I understand actually just like yesterday or today, the the United States-based lawsuit was – was dismissed, but I, I mean, I was wondering if, if you don't mind, if you could talk a little bit about about that situation and sort of the how the law and the market for the works 
interact with each other under those contexts? I mean, is a work like that Katie Nolan sculpture sellable anymore, irrespective of what the courts say? I think there's a lot of examples of where the market cares much more about what the artist says about it than what any court cares about it uh, or says about it. Um, So I think that to the extent that an artist says that's not my work anymore, um, that's what's going to be far and away the driving factor. And we have some even traditional sort of object-based cases um, involving um, authenticity where a court comes out and says something's authentic and and the artist disputes it and then you can't sell it, even though a court has come out and said, no, we find it to be authentic, hearing a lot of experts on both sides. But of course, all this raises something we haven't really talked about yet, which is moral rights, which is the right of attribution is a central Mm -hmm. part of sort of the moral rights um, uh, body of of rights that you get in in traditional moral rights. And and part of what I think these documents are going to do or will do in the U.S. at least is fill a lot of holes. As as many of your listeners know, moral rights are are really quite weak in the United States. And and Vera is, you know, often described as some sort of Swiss cheese with with a ton of holes in it. Um, That's the visual artist right. Rights Act, the U.S. basic moral rights um, statute. And in many ways, some of these contracts or, or, or permissive certificates can be seen as trying to give back, especially with these rights of attribution, um, some of the um, ability to control uh, works uh, further downstream. Now, the Nolan work you're talking about, Log Cabin, is not a really a permissive certificate-based work because it's, it is one specific object that she was contesting. Um, but you can think about examples mm-hmm. of where um, somebody like Judd, for example, going back to him, um, would essentially um, renounce authorship. And in his case, you know, the Guggenheim's actually having a conference coming up in a couple of weeks. They've been working. They have a tremendous number of these documents that were owned by this collector, uh, Ponza, um, that um, some of which were realized as sculptures that were contested, some of which have never been realized, and they are going to um, uh, be holding a conference based on a kind of years of research they've been doing into these and decide on what to do about these works that just retain uh, paper that Judd basically renounced but um, still exist as paper. That's amazing. So, so Peter, in, in closing, um, you know, this paper, like, gets at a bunch of really difficult questions about permissive certificates and answers some of them, but not all. And so I, I feel like there's more to come and I'm wondering if you talk about like where you're going. Yeah, it's it's a great question. In many ways, this is just kind of laying a foundation for various different, you could take this in so many different directions. Um, One that I am really interested in that I get all the time that I really don't have a good answer to now is the should question, right? So, you know, if we think about um, these documents, as I argue in the paper, as potentially giving artists a, a really vital form of artistic of control over works that um, is stronger than and potentially far longer lasting than VARA protections. Um, should we be encouraging that, right? Should we uh, want a system mm-hmm. where private uh, relations are sort of trumping what um, we've come out with our statutory legislation um, we think is the right balance? And, and maybe we want that because we feel like Vera got it wrong or something like that. And, and really where I want to spend some time thinking um, is, is that should question of, of how do we respond to this? Should, should we allow um, this kind of control on an ongoing basis? Yeah. Well, I I think that's a great question that will actually have important ramifications, you know, not only in the art world, but outside the art world as well. Yeah. Yeah. I really look forward to seeing it. Well, thanks so much, Peter. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
like silver. She had her dark in the rolling eye and her hand over her shoulders with a right fall of right fall of lay, right fall of diddle on a ding die. Oh, why be you going, my pretty fair maid? Why be you going, my honey? She answered me, kind of a mother, she said, I'm on an errand for my Miami with my right fall of lay, right fall of lay. Right called it little not a ding dying. Oh, may I go with you, my pretty family? May I go with you, my honey? She answered me, friend of the mother, you must bring along your right call, 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 right call,